have a seat. <clears throat> My name is Todd Kramer. I'm the pastor of students um, here at Parkview and just excited to be, um, to be up here again um, this morning. Um, last time I was up here, I had several people say, man, you move around a lot and you're always kind of moving. It's because I work with students and if I stand still, it's yet another reason why they want to fall asleep. So I will um, move around. That and the combination of caffeine this morning um, may make me move around a bunch. Um, we got back from camp on Wednesday night about 11 o'clock. Um, it was just an awesome week in Wisconsin with, um, with students just talking about living fearlessly um, for Jesus. And so it was just as I've been preparing this message, a lot of, a lot of tie-in um, to what we were talking about up there and standing boldly for, um, for our faith. So excited to be here this morning. Um, we, we live in a time, we live in a day when um, Christian doctrine is, is considered inflexible. It's considered um, narrow. And, and people feel that any sort of opinion about Jesus is, is okay. And as we wrap up 1 John, um, John really argues strongly for an accurate belief about Jesus, about Jesus, the Son of God. Because what a person believes about Jesus will affect every other part of our life, including our love, our sin, our lifestyle. And 1 John chapter 5 serves um, really as a summary of the key themes that, that John has presented throughout this book, themes that, that should give us confidence, themes like purity and faith, belief, love, obedience, truth, righteousness, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And chapter 5 revisits many of the previous themes with, the, with an emphasis on the marks of new birth. And John has referenced the wonder of being a child of God all throughout his letter, but he really hits it in this chapter. For us, we have, we have three kids, and Lainey is, is like 16 months old, and every day we, we see new things from her. As soon as she started walking, um, we began to see her honoriness. We began to see um, just more personality traits, her will to do things, to walk places, to climb on things, to open everything. And, and every day we see more of, her, of our good and bad qualities um, in her. You know, every baby is born with, with certain characteristics that, that, that they share with all of humanity and some specific characteristics that, that they get from their parents. I think in the same way, every child of God has the same capacity to love, to serve, and to obey. And the Bible talks about benefits related to our birth and adoption as children of God. I think John wanted us to be able to distinguish between true and false children. So let's begin our journey through chapter 5. And, and the first section that we'll look at is the first five verses, which I want to call the marks of God's kids. John 5, 1 through 5. And, and really in this section, I think the point of this section is that, is that followers of Jesus will display evidence of being God's kids, including right beliefs and, and living holy lives. And he's going to draw out some implications, some evidences that a person is a child of God. He wants believers to have assurance that they have been born again, that they belong to Jesus, and they can enjoy now the gift of eternal life. So verses 1 and 2, where we'll start, will tell us that we believe that Jesus is Messiah and that we love the Father and his family. And the first two verses say, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who trusts the Father, loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. I think you can spot a true child of God by a lifestyle of trust in God. Everyone who demonstrates a habit of believing God has been born of God at a point in time, and they are his kids. I think belief flanks both sides of our new birth. Faith is both a cause and a consequence of new birth. And just as it takes a charge from the battery to start the engine of a car, a running engine also serves to run the alternator, which in turn charges the battery. Or old-fashioned wells needed water to prime the pump in order to generate more water. Genuine children of God become children of God through faith, but then they continue to live by faith after that new birth. And love for God is the core mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you claim to love God, you will love his kids. And if you love his kids, you will love God. In fact, not to love fellow believers, I think, is evidence that one has truly not been born of God. And we saw that in the last chapter, in in chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, when John said, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. You know, in the book of, uh, in, the, in, in 1 John, John mentions loving one another eight times in this small letter. I think the mark of a child of God is, is continual faith, love for God, love for his kids. As we go to verse 3, we see, we see the, the, the challenge to obey his commands. and says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, our love for God must go beyond just feeling that we love him. Our, our love for God must be demonstrated by action, by obedience to God. I think it's pretty hard to convince somebody that you love them when you refuse or neglect to do the things that are important to them. And John here describes what it means to love God when he uses the word keep, which I think is, is the idea to watch, to guard, to treasure. And here he gives us both the action and the attitude toward God's commands. Not only are we to do them, but we are to have a heart attitude that treasures them as something that we value, something that we consider important. Um, D.L. Moody is, is a guy that I have a, a tremendous amount of respect, and I love reading um, old sermons and, and just things from him. And he made a quote one time that every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. And what, what he was saying is that we, that we show our love to God not by simply words, but by willing works. We are, re- we are not slaves obeying a master. We are children obeying a father. And I think a test of maturing love is our attitude toward the Bible. Because in the Bible, we find God's will for our lives revealed. You know, someone who doesn't know Jesus, I think they consider the Bible um, kind of an impossible book, mainly because they don't understand the message of the Bible. But then someone who may be a follower of Jesus, but maybe they're immature in their faith, they consider the demands of the Bible to be burdensome. Why do I want to do that? Why should I do that? Wouldn't it be better if I do this? Whereas someone who says, you know what, I'm a fully developing follower of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. They experience God's perfecting love. They find themselves enjoying the word of God and truly loving the Bible. Now, I think our level of spiritual maturity could be, could be measured by our attitude toward God's commands and God's will. Because we first come to knowledge of his will. We come to a knowledge of his commands. And then as it begins to permeate our lives, our our mind, our hearts become filled with the knowledge of his will. And then we develop a desire to do his will, to obey his commands. And we consistently do it. 
Paul wrote about this in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, just in case there was a sense of frustration with God's commands, John reminds them that his commands are not burdensome. And I love that word. Burdensome means heavy or weighty, distasteful. And verse 3 really is an echo of, of things that we saw in, in the teachings of Jesus and Peter and, and Paul. Because the Pharisees had this yoke of teaching that they placed on their disciples. They required, the followers of the Pharisees had hundreds and hundreds of, of laws that they had to observe. And every little thing had a law for it. But Jesus in, in Luke chapter 11 says, And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. You yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And Peter, following on that in Acts 15, said, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And finally, Paul in Galatians 5 once says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But Jesus, when he talked about his yoke, his yoke was different in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, Jesus was not lawless, but the yoke that he gave his followers was summed up in two commands. Love God, love other people. The opposite of lawlessness is not legalism, but I think it's love that's lived out consistently in our lives. Live this way. That's when love fulfills the law because love is the spirit of the law. And I think true children of God want to do the Father's will because they know his heart. They know it's intended for their good. So the question for us is, what is our attitude toward God's commandments? Do we look at them as, as restrictions to our freedom? Or do we look at them as, as protection and a means of pleasing God? Psalm 119 97 through 99 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And Psalm 119, all 176 verses really express a passion for God's commandments. Um, obedience isn't a burden, but it's a celebration of new and full life that comes from Jesus. So as we look at the beginning of this chapter, I, I think we can see three assurances that we are children of God. There's, there's the belief that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. There's, there's our behavior. We, we, after believing that he's the Son of God, we're obeying God's commandments. And then there's a belonging. We love God's people. And that brings us into verses 4 and 5 where we find out that we've overcome the world and we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that, is, that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And now John brings us in to an idea that he touched on previously in the book, the idea of overcoming. And overcome means to vanquish. And I love here that the, the, the Greek noun for victory is Nike. Um, here, here it is used as the means for winning a victory. You know, in Greek mythology, Nike is the goddess of victory, where today it's the source of that really overpriced brand of shoe. Um, but I, I, I think I love that word um, for, for victory. And I think we as followers of Jesus, we can at times find ourselves being passive in the face of evil, in the face of, of evil people. 
But John recalls Jesus' words from John 16, when Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John is saying that we have victory. He's saying we have victory because Jesus has taken on the world and won. But for today, maintaining this victory today, it requires a couple of things. It requires our understanding of, of Jesus' victory over sin, the world, and the devil. And it, requ- and it requires our faith, our willingness to stand in this truth today daily and live by it. You know, even though the call of the world rings in our ears, the voice of Jesus is so much louder than the world. We are called to protect ourselves with the armor of God and then to stand our ground in faith and expectation of victory. You know, without faith in Jesus, no one is able to face down the evil, the hopelessness, the self-defeat that this world is throwing at us daily. There may be many self-help books written about how we can have our best lives now. And some of what they say may be helpful and, and worthwhile, but, but what is of the world can't give us victory over the world. Without trust in Jesus, even the most successful life is swallowed up in the defeat of death. And so those first five verses were the marks of God's kids. And that brings us into the, the next like seven verses where the question could be, how do we know Jesus is who he says he is? And this is verses 6 through 12. And here you see John moving into a discussion of, of different witnesses to, to the person and work of Jesus. You know, what we believe in is of the greatest importance. I, I think the object of our faith determines the outcome of our faith. It's not the act of, of trusting, but who I trust that makes the difference. You know, I can have faith in Hawkeye football, but by week three, that's going to prove disastrous. Or I can have faith in the Son of God, and I can come out absolutely victorious. The main point of this section is that Christians can know that Jesus is God's Son because God provided witnesses that testify to his divine nature, giving hope and assurance to those who follow Jesus. And it starts with verses 6 through 8 where we find out that we have, wit- we have the witness of his baptism, of his crucifixion of the Holy Spirit. Verses 6 through 8 say, this is, this is he who comes by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. You know, and John wants his readers to know the evidence that Jesus is both Christ and Son of God in the flesh. And the three witnesses combine to give a unanimous testimony, spirit, water, and blood. You know, John's opponents at this point believe that the divine Christ came upon the human Jesus at his baptism, but then left him before he got on the cross. And so I think with that in mind, John's explanation here in verse 6 makes sense because in other words, Jesus Christ, his divine title came not only through water, through the baptism, but also through blood, through the crucifixion. But how do, these, how do these witnesses testify? I think Jesus' baptism testifies to his full divinity in a few ways. Um, John the Baptist um, sees and, and testifies to the fact that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in, in bodily form. There at the baptism, we hear God's voice saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And then John the Baptist again testifies that Jesus is both the son of God who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus' crucifixion and the surrounding events of the crucifixion testify to his divinity in, in, in a bunch of ways as well. I mean, in his trial, he acknowledged that he was Christ, the Son of God, before the chief priests, before Pilate. 
He was, he was crucified for claiming to be the Son of God. And as he was hanging on the cross, the inscription over him said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, really reflecting Jesus' claim to be King, that is Messiah, to be Christ. Um, there were many, many scripture that were fulfilled at his crucifixion. And even the Roman centurion who was there having to hang out and make sure something didn't happen with the bodies, witnessing the crucifixion, saw the darkness over the land, felt the earthquake that took place at his death, and he said, surely this man was a son of God. And then there's a the resurrection, and Jesus' resurrection is God's seal that Jesus is his risen son. And then verses 9 to 10, we have the, witnesses, we have the witness of the Father and of our own conversion. You know, while water and blood represent external witnesses to the divinity of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, which was, was mentioned as a third witness in verse 8, is seen as an internal witness in verses 9 to 10. And it says, if we, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son, whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. But what does John mean in verse 10 when he says, whoever believes in the Son of God is a testimony to in himself? And that, I think, John is referring to an internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, refer, Paul also refers to this inner testimony of the Spirit in, in Romans um, chapter 8, um, when he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And John then moves to bolster the assurance of believers in the face of the lies the false teachers have been spreading in verses 11 and 12 with the witness of eternal life. I love these verses. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So it starts in verse 11 with God gave us eternal life. And that is the prize. That is the promise of Jesus. God has given eternal life to us. And he continues by saying the life is in his son. Eternal life cannot be separated from the son. It resides in him, not in, not in doctrine, not in a specific church. You know, as a church, we must point men and women to Jesus. But the actual life is found in association with Jesus and with Jesus alone. Eternal life is a living relationship that cannot be separated from the Son. It's a relationship based on God's grace. And so John is on the one hand, he's reassuring the believers, and, and on the other, he's, he's drawing a line between true faith and the false teaching that had really divided the church. Eternal life is found in Jesus the Son and in Him alone. And in verse 12, he says, whoever has a Son has life. To have the Son means to enjoy a living personal relationship with him, to reach him through prayer, to share his blessings, to receive his, his forgiveness, to experience his grace, while to not have the Son of God means you don't have eternal life. You're missing out on all of the blessings that come with the relationship with Jesus. You know, the purpose of John's statement is not to make the true believer agonize or stress out on whether or not um, that they have the Son, but instead it was to give assurance to the believers that they did. And so that section wraps up on the how, how do we know Jesus is who he says he is. This, this final chunk of, of, first, of 1 John 5, verses 13 to 21, are really kind of the essential truths for followers of Jesus. And, 
And here we see John really beginning to summarize. Um, all throughout the gospel, uh, all throughout 1 John, it's a lot of repetition. He's repeating a lot of the same things. And we see that here as we move toward the conclusion of his letter. With the main point in this section being that the followers of Jesus can rest in the truths that we belong to the God who answers prayer. That we have spiritual victory and that, that Jesus is the true and only source of eternal life. And so verse, verse 13 tells us that we can know that we have eternal life. And John says, I, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The purpose of this letter is not only to clarify and, and refute the opponents who have spread false teaching, it's also to encourage the believers who've really walked through drama, walked through turmoil in their church, so that they can know without a doubt that they have eternal life. And this verse clearly states that a believer can and should have assurance of salvation, have assurance of eternal life. It tells us that a person can have such a witness or testimony in their, in their hearts. We saw in verse 10 with the Holy Spirit. And if you've been in doubt, if, you, if you're wondering where you stand, I think this is a verse that we should take hold of, that we should memorize, that we should make it our own, that you may know that you have eternal life. And that's a great transitional um, verse going into 14 to 17 where we find out that we can know that God answers prayer. And 14 to 17 says this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So at, at first glance, John seems to be introducing this new topic, talking about prayer. But, but this verse is a transition really into a final discussion about sin, about the believer's responsibility toward brothers or sisters who aren't living in Jesus. And like I said, John habitually returns to topics. And while he hasn't discussed prayer earlier in the letter, he has repeatedly talked about sin. You know, I think one of the blessings of having a relationship with God is, is answered prayer. Because we can come to him with confidence because we know that he's going to hear us, that he's going to grant our requests. But God answering our prayers is conditional. And we see that in verse 14. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But how do we know what God's will is? I think the Bible is, is full of indications of what he's in favor of, of what he isn't. And in 1 John, we see a couple conditions to prayer that are given. In, in chapter 3, 22, he, he talks about our obedience. And then in 5, 14, God's will. So our obedience and God's will. Because prayer is never intended to pressure God into giving in to our desires. Hey, God, I really want that Ferrari. Sweet, you're going to give it to me. Um, not going to happen. Prayer is about seeking him. Prayer is about seeking God's will. And John encourages followers of Jesus to boldly pray for Christian brothers and sisters who they see sinning so that God might restore them. You know, the word brother in this passage indicates a fellow, a fellow Christian, and the phrase give him life means that God would restore that individual who is sinning to, a, to the path of eternal life. And this verse parallels others throughout the New Testament. James, writing in chapter 5, 19 and 20, um, says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, will cover a multitude of sins. And then Paul in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is, taught in any, is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual shall restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You know, the, the New Testament writers 
urge us to pray for our sinning brothers and sisters, asking that God would grant them repentance and bring them back into full fellowship with God and his family, the church. Which so far, I think that idea is, is we, we understand that, it's pretty clear. But then the issue gets a little muddy as we, as we continue on in this passage as John introduces a sin that we're not to pray for. Um, if, in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. You know, John is, John is saying, you, know, you have no obligation to pray about certain sins. Leave that in God's hands for those who commit those sins. And the question then would be, okay, what is this, this sin um, that we're not to pray for? And the text calls it a sin that leads to death. And, and this is um, a difficult verse um, really to interpret. We can, it's easy to spend a lot of time speculating, um, but, but really without coming to an assured answer. But I want to look at it. I don't want to just skip these verses either. And so just briefly looking at these issues. I think the context of eternal life in verse 13, I think it, it can give us, um, or it seems to require um, spiritual life and death rather than death as a physical punishment. In the Old Testament, in, in Judaism, they distinguished um, between um, unintentional, unwitting, um, or unwilling sins of ignorance that could be forgiven and then blatant, um, defiant sins that could not be atoned for. And I think John is most concerned about the sins which are incompatible with being a child of God. Because such a sin would be, would be the refusal to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. This sin above all others leads to eternal, eternal death because it includes a deliberate refusal to believe in the one who alone can give life. And, and I think that's in sharp contrast to, to the person that's following Jesus who's tempted and sins out of weakness but longs to be freed from their sin and still believes in Jesus. Even if that sin had been a deliberate act at the time, but they, but they show remorse um, and, and, and because of that, um, they show the repentance. And, and that's where we can say, praise God for forgiveness of our sins. You know, as I studied this passage and spent time um, walking through this, this section, especially with, um, with Doug Schoenger, as we walked through this and wrestled with this together, I, I would tend to say, um, yes, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is that, that same um, sin um, in here. That um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an absolute and steadfast refusal to believe in Jesus. And I think that's what we see um, in, this, in this passage. If you are here, you're a follower of Jesus, and, you wor- and you're worried because, man, have I, have I committed this, this unforgivable sin? I can assure you that you haven't. If you had, you would be defiant in your sin. You would not be heartbroken. You would be wanting to, to move away from your sin and not enjoying just living in it, refusing to follow Jesus. I think in the context of 1 John, the sin that leads to death is a steadfast denial by John's opponents that Jesus is the Son of God. And from that denial came their lovelessness and their lawlessness with regard um, to sin. So John is saying, you know what? Pray for a brother who sins. Okay, but then why should we pray for a sinning brother? I think it's very possible for a true follower of Jesus to stray away from living for him. You know, we are to pray that God would bring them back um, we should pray for them because of our love for them. We should pray for them because we seek their best. And, and I love that John places a responsibility for the spiritual health of a congregation on every member, not just on, on a pastor, on every one of us. He places this responsibility for the spiritual health of a congregation. 
And he does that so that, one, that, that, that all of us could discern truth from falsehood and then, and then that we could all just have lives of prayer for our fellow brothers and sisters. No one can, should write off another person as beyond God's saving grace because God is in the business of changing lives. But it is also necessary to, to realize and discern that, that not everyone who sits in a church who calls themselves a follower of Jesus um, exemplifies spiritual truth that we should be following or truly knows them. And so John concludes this section on prayer with a reminder that, that though there is such a thing as a sin that leads to death, all sin is serious. Sin isn't just an attitude. The attitude works itself out in acts that are wrong, that are unjust, that are unrighteous. So we may tell ourselves that, you know what, I didn't mean to sin. That doesn't mean that we didn't sin. Paul is pretty clear in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that brings us into verses 18 and 20 where we can know victory over sin and we can know that we belong to God and we can know what is true. And as John nears the end of his letter, he gives us three we know statements in these, in these three verses. 18 and 20 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The end of verse 18 says, He who is born to God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So coming off of, of the dire warnings in that, uh, about sin that leads to death in verses 16 and 17, I think here John's readers can, can be assured in what Jesus has done for us because it's summarized in Verse 18 is the protection the Father has given to his kids through Jesus. You know, throughout the life of Jesus, he prayed for protection for his followers. He taught his disciples to pray, Lord, um, protect us from evil, deliver us from evil. Um, Paul, writing to the, um, those in Thessalonica, said that the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect. And then John affirms all this in verse 19 when he says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Despite the pressure, the temptation from the world, um, the enemy's influence, we have an understanding of our identity as God's kids. We have that understanding. Jesus' power, Jesus' protection is active all around us. And John, John concludes with an assurance in verse 20. And as the letter, letter closes, he again asserts Jesus' full divinity. And the end of verse 20 is, he is the true God and eternal life. And then we come to, to his final word, um, his final exhortation in, in verse 21. And, and it's kind of this, old, this older man to his, his dear children is a really simple one-sentence one verse, simple but, but could be kind of puzzling in the context of everything else. And his kind of mic drop moment, he's like, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And then we're done. Throughout this letter, um, the errors that... that that John had confronted had focused on a wrong Christology, on, on lack of love, on lawlessness, hadn't talked about idol worship at all. So why bring it up now? And I think he does because he had just told his readers that Jesus is the, the one true God and eternal life in verse 20. And I think the essence of idolatry is substituting something false and unworthy in the place of the true God. So John here is, is saying... Little children, watch yourselves so that you don't let anything false, anything unworthy, take the place of your true faith in the true God. 
And I think that makes it a really fitting way to conclude his letter. You know, John teaches us throughout, but especially in verse 20, that the highest form of knowledge is knowledge of the one true God who's been revealed in Jesus. Because this is the knowledge by which we attain eternal life. And this stands in opposition to, to all the voices, all the views, all the other religions that offer God substitutes, that offer idols in the place of the living God. The worship of any God, any God substitute is, is idolatry, whether it is a political idea, a fashionable cult, or, or basically just the product of our own wishful thinking. And although it's a popular belief that there are many ways to God, the only way that arrives at eternal life is through Jesus. John was not writing about the idolatry of another religion in this passage. He was, writing, he was writing to Christian readers about the idolatry of fashioning one's own understanding of, of Jesus that eliminated or diminished the atonement of the crucifixion. And John would remind us that apart from Jesus, there is no real understanding of, of the truth and the power to live according to the truth. Living within a time and place that we do when the term Christian can indicate a wide variety of beliefs. How easy is it to be led astray from the true knowledge of God? And John says that there is true knowledge of the one true God and there is idolatry. There is false knowledge based on untrue assumptions about reality. And John urges his readers to guard their hearts um, from being drawn away from Jesus as the object of their devotion. Working with, with students, I, I can see this easily in, in the sports and performance world. Um, with sports, practices, show choirs, academic pressures, all can very easily become idols in Iowa City. Now those things are not bad things at all. They're not bad things. But with them comes the temptation to allow them to be God to be the most important thing in their lives. And, and you occupy everything, and then God kind of gets put aside. But for us as adults, what are the things that can be our idols? Um, maybe it's, it's our jobs. Maybe it's the toys that we want to accumulate. Maybe it's, it's our kids or our grandkids. We can do the same thing with other things and make those our idols. As we wrap up, I think there are three purposes for a chapter like this to end this great um, short letter. I think first, I think it's a checklist to identify who God's kids are and, and, who, um, and who isn't one of his kids. Um, it's the marks of God's kids. And secondly, I think it's an encouragement about what God has provided for us in Jesus. It's that assurance for us in what God has provided, the protection that we have. And then finally, um, I think the instructions that are given to all of his kids should be a challenge for us. I think it should be a challenge for us in how we should live. If you believe the gospel, if you believe the claims about Jesus and what he has done for us and who we are in him, then nothing that happens in this world can get at our identity as followers of Jesus. Our identity is based on somebody who was cast out for us, who loved his enemies, and that is going to turn us into people who will embrace his call. And the world needs people who have the capacity to do what God compels and empowers them to do it. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this great, this great book. We thank you for um, the assurance that we can have um, in you. God, we thank you that you did send your son um, to die for us um, so that we could um, live for you, God. I pray as we, as we leave here, as we begin a new week, as a new school year comes upon us, Lord, help us 
um, to be men and women who um, truly worship the one true God um, and, and strive after living for you um, every day, being lights in our schools, in our jobs, in our homes, with our, with our wives, with our family, with our kids. God, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.